Bandwidth for Priority One Podcast is brought to you by Playa Escondida. Ever dreamed of visiting Planet Risa? Well, Playa Escondida is the ultimate beach resort excursion. Visit PlayaEscondida.com to book your ultimate vacation getaway. Command codes verified. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains! You're listening to episode 173 of Priority One Podcast, the premier Star Trek online podcast. Recorded Thursday, May 8th, 2014, and available for download or streaming as of Monday, May 12th, 2014, at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Jace. I'm Cookie. And I'm Elijah. Well, Elijah, tell us what we have in store this week. Well, Captains, this week we're skipping Trek It Out and jumping right into Star Trek Online News, where there's a storm a-brewing with the announcement of the new Tempest-class patrol refit and its fleet variant. We'll also talk about player-driven events and what that could mean for Star Trek Online. Later, Professor Jace continues his Field Notes series on defense. In our Community Spotlight segment, we introduce to you yet another new independent film project titled Star Trek Horizon, which tells the story of the Iconians much differently than our beloved Star Trek Online. And of course, as always, we'll open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming from you, our listeners. Captains, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One Podcast. You can continue to support Priority One with real-world donations by helping us reach our monthly financial goals. We are all volunteers, and we could use your help with the overall running costs that help keep this podcast going week after week. Captains, don't forget that PriorityOnePodcast.com offers more than just podcasts. In his latest Role Player's Guide to the Galaxy... Varzek defends Bajorans and offers his take on role-playing as well. Check out this blog and others only on PriorityOnePodcast.com. And lastly, Captains, before we move on with the show, we invite you to keep an eye on our social media platforms like Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast or on Twitter at STO Priority One. Well, Captains, there's a tempest coming, so let's head on over to STO News. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. All right, Captains. Starting off this week in Stowe News, we have Season 9, Dev Blog number 20, introducing the Patrol Escort Refit Tempest Class and the Fleet Patrol Escort Refit Maelstrom Class. So these are an update to venerable 25th century ships that have been with us since the early days of the game. The original patrol escort was at the time called the Fleet Escort, and the name changed when the fleet system came into being to avoid confusion. Now, there's a few points about this new ship and its fleet version that may lead to additional confusion, which we'll try to address here. But first, let's talk about the ships themselves, because they're pretty awesome. These were originally uh, tactical ships with an engineering focus. So, tactical 
commander, engineering, lieutenant commander, and that hasn't changed. However, it does improve on the original designs by adding a lieutenant commander universal and then its final slot being the lieutenant science. That's a change. So no more ensigns. Correct. No more lost in space tactical ensign that typically didn't have a good role on an escort of that type. If you were going all cannons, you really only needed two of them for tactical teams, or you could throw in a uh, torpedo spread, but otherwise it's, it's probably not going to get utilized. Uh, it now has a fifth tactical console slot, bringing it in line with the advanced escort and the tactical escort. Additional aft firepower giving Tempest Captains a potential new option. So this is kind of interesting, right? Uh, the game mechanics, other than mines really, have not supported the idea of doing firing passes or strafing runs or anything like that. Now, in addition to its four forward and three aft weapons, it has a fourth aft slot that is locked, just like on the Dyson ships, how they have the proton cannon that is locked in the fore section. And this is a phaser cannon directed in a 90 degree arc to the aft that benefits from the effects of tactical cannon abilities and has essentially a built-in rapid fire one. This fused weapon is called the Aft Tempest Tailgun and both the Sea Store version of the ship, which is the refit, and the fleet version come with this weapon. Now the Sea Store version comes with two other benefits. One, you get the snazzy new Tempest class skin for the ship, which is fantastic. It looks in line with things like the Avenger or the Regent or the Vesta, these more modernized Federation designs with uh, the white hull, light colored hull and black highlights. I like it a lot and I was a big fan of the original Dervish patrol escort, so it's very tempting. It also comes with a new console called the Nadion Saturation Bomb console. This fires a string of explosive fire strafing between the ship and its target and then continues on past the target. So it fires in a line, kind of not unlike the phaser lance, it will hit everything in that line. Um, however, it will also linger as a nadion radiation field, making a hazard. Similar to your vent warp plasma field, commonly seen to my dismay on the Gorn science vessels in Taldewa sector patrol. This can be put in any console slot of any patrol escort. So either the original patrol escorts, the refit, or the fleet refit. Now compared to the original ship, it's got a little bit better hull strength shield modifier. You get the fused aft cannon and the upgraded boff slotting and I would say the different console slotting. It's more DPS focus. The original ship had more engineering slots. So that's a little bit of a trade-off, but generally this is a fast and deadly versatile ship. A couple of the options the Lieutenant Commander Universal gives you include running a second engineering boff and being able to run this as an aux de bat ship for those who are into that sort of thing. You can run it as Lieutenant Commander Science and slot a gravity well for those no-win scenario type builds, or you can mimic the Defiant layout and max out your tactical slots with a Lieutenant Commander Tactical. So very versatile in that sense. Now the Fleet Patrol Escort refit, which is the new version of the Maelstrom class. Now the Maelstrom class also has a storied history. Originally, the Maelstrom skin was purchasable in the Sea Store. With the introduction of the Fleet Starbase system, it was made the variant 
included with the fleet patrol escort. Now the old fleet patrol escort will be retired and replaced with the fleet patrol escort refit, which will still come with the Maelstrom skin. Now if you've previously unlocked the Maelstrom skin, you don't lose it or anything like that, you still have it. It's just no more fleet patrol escorts will be purchasable after this goes live. Typically for fleet ships, this is going to add an additional console. In this case, it'll give a third engineering console slot to the fleet version. As I mentioned before, it does come with the fused tail gun. It does not come with the console, but can slot it. It does not come with the new skin, but if you own the new skin, you can use it on this ship. Now, folks have already been asking this. Uh, the cost of the fleet patrol escort refit is five fleet modules. It's one fleet module if you purchase the C store version, the patrol escort refit. However, there is not a discount if you own the older fleet patrol escort. You don't lose access to that ship at all, but it's not related in terms of fleet modules to this ship. This one, you're starting from scratch and have to buy it outright. And of course, as usual, it increases the hull strength and shield modifier on the fleet class ship. I'm not sure yet of the full utility of the tail gun, but we're really, it's not taking away from our aft weapon slots. So it's just the type of thing that can be used opportunistically, or you can build around it if you like. I really see no drawback to that. That aft cannon, that tail gun is a dual cannon that is not removable from the ship and it is a phaser. So if you are an anti-proton builder, right? Somebody that likes to run that anti-proton build for that critical severity, I think this might play like a Chimera, where the Chimera has that Phaser Lance, and if you want to, to boost that Phaser Lance ability with Phaser Tactical Consoles, um, you would lean towards running a full Phaser build on that ship. And I think this, is, this might be another ship where you would probably be better off running a full Phaser build and running those Phaser Tactical Consoles. So you might lose on that critical severity hit. Um, all right, so I saw Patrol Escort Refit Tempest class, and because it looks so different, I was half expecting there to be a fleet version of that, but in this, and which is what they normally do, right? They normally release a sea store ship, and then they wait a little bit for a fleet variant. In this case, because these are improvements of existing ships in the game, we're seeing both ships being released at the same time. We're seeing the Tempest Patrol Escort Refit released, and then its fleet variant uh, released immediately. I'm actually seriously considering switching from my fleet advanced escort over to this new fleet patrol escort. I don't know that I'll buy the, the sea store variant. Um, if I bought it, it's because of the skin. I'd have to see what people say about the Nadion saturation bomb to see if it's worth it. But uh, alone, the aft tail gun is great, right? Um, because usually with an escort, you would put turrets on the back. And I think you still would. I think that with this ship, you would put, you would still have the same layout in the back. Uh, except that in this case, if you're, if you are doing a strafing run, you'll have a little bit more oomph uh, as you're passing or turning away from the enemy. But I mean, compared to, let's say a fleet advance escort, this is a pretty tanky escort. You know, this is going to be something that is great for survivability. It's a handsome ship and I'm, I'm actually seriously considering uh, getting at least the fleet escort and I'm tempted to get the sea store just for the skin because it looks it's a nice looking ship yeah I have to say I was a fan like I said of the dervish since the early days of the game it's definitely one of the things that most appealed to me 
that was a STO specific ship and I always wanted to have that type 6 skin like you see on some of the newer ships for that class and it just was never available till now so it's going to be very tempting I think and it's relevant to what you were saying about the no win scenario I think this ship may make one of the strongest cases for using loadouts of almost any ship released so far because that lieutenant commander universal can so dramatically change how you play the whole ship you know so if you make a no win loadout that uses Gravwell and a couple science consoles that boost Graviton generators, but then you want to switch to everyday sort of pew-pew farming type mode and go to an aux to bat where you can just hit spacebar to win, uh, you can do that. But if you want to go all out, you know, fly by the seat of your pants, max DPS, you can switch it to the tactical, you know, have all your consoles be focused around damage. And the other thing too is that this ship, you know, I'm comparing it right now uh, with the Mobius Temple Destroyer, and I think this actually goes a little toe-to-toe -to, -toe to that one too. Uh, the Mobius will give you uh, plus 10 weapons power and plus 5 auxiliary, but, you know, uh, plus 5 auxiliary, I don't, I don't ever worry about my auxiliary power, I really don't, I never worry about it. But in terms of the bridge officer stations, this is pretty comparable. I mean, the Mobius only has an ensign engineer, where now this this ship has a lieutenant commander engineer. And the other difference versus the Mobius destroyer, which is commonly used for that no-win build, is you've got four tactical, two engineer, four science on the Mobius, whereas on the fleet version of these new escorts, you've got five tactical, three engineer, two science. I still don't think, even on my Mobius when I was running it, I think maybe at most I was using three science consoles uh, for shields. You know, so I, I this is a really versatile ship. I think that this could, I, I like I said, I may switch out of my at Fleet Advance Escort uh, into this new Fleet Escort refit, just to feel a little more tanky too. I mean, this is oh, the, the other thing over the Fleet Advance Escort is that you've got 600 more points to hold. True. It's a little bit tougher version, and it's a little more tough even than the previous edition of the patrol escort. So it brings it a little more in line with some of the newer ships. If I'm reading this properly on uh, on Stowiki, the fleet advanced escort only has a lieutenant engineer, where this has a lieutenant commander engineer. I mean, you're low on hull, boom, launch your launch your engineering team, and you still have room to have a science team for your shields. I, I like the direction they're going with the ship layouts. When with what we discussed with the uh, Undine Nikor last time, which was also a very versatile build with a Lieutenant Commander Universal, and now seeing this on what I think of as like a workhorse core Federation ship that's been around since launch. And we can't say that Cryptic's not listening to us anymore because I think that uh, the ongoing the ongoing debate has been that Ensign slot that keeps creeping out and, and creeping up in some of these ships. Uh, here's a ship that doesn't have it. There's no more of that weird, like you said earlier, that weird. What do I do with this this single power slot? It, it does no. It does very little good. Um, so it's nice to see that they've introduced a ship that addresses that. So captains, here's our first community question for you this week: Will you be purchasing the new escort? How do you think it compares to the other, more commonly used escorts in the game, like the Fleet Defiant? Let us know your thoughts in the comments section for this episode on PriorityOnePodcast.com or in the forum post for this episode on the Star Trek Online forums. Well, Captains, a few weeks ago, we received feedback from a listener, Azurian Star, that still lacks some of the zeal that other MMOs traditionally have or had. Specifically, that the instance gameplay, like the queued events... Cued ground, cued STFs, hurts the longevity and the experience that a player has uh, in the game. 
we talked more about this in our feedback segment for episode 171, and, and it's been something that's been churning in my mind. So I recently read an article on MMORPG that, that really helped me identify what I think is the root of the problem. In her April 30th column on MMORPG, Janice Davis spotlights the 12 famous player-driven MMORPG moments. Arguably, some were missed, like the Great Eve Battle of 2013, but at its core, these were player-driven moments in MMORPG history. Something that I think Stowe will never truly have. Now, we've talked about this in the past before, about merging the instant servers into one or two main servers, maybe three. And we've toyed in how Star Trek can, can capture that traditional MMO feel of being involved in something. But I think that after reading this argument, I, I've been able to kind of focus what is at its root uh, one of the core issues with Star Trek Online. Some of my fondest memories in, in The Matrix Online, and arguably The Matrix Online is probably not the best MMO ever created, but it was when there were server-wide events. Suddenly, Morpheus showed up in the social area and players dropped whatever they were doing to run and interact with the character. There were world events that sent players on scavenger hunts. But whether or not MXO was the best MMO out there is not the point. The point is that an MMO is supposed to be a massively multiplayer experience. And I think that's why the Voth Battlezone, for instance, is one of the most exciting pieces of content that Star Trek Online has had to offer. It's the closest thing that we've seen to a server world event that players can actually get involved with. In this one mission, dozens of players control the map. And that outcome of the map relies on the success of players. And at the end of it all, players in that instance need to all come together, rush to one spot, and bring down a frackin' T-Rex with frickin' laser beams attached to his head. Yes. Stowe is fundamentally an instance game. From the moment we log in, all the players are split between various instances. So we'll never have the chance of making MMO history because the players are split across these instances in game. So imagine, if you would, a massive Borg invasion attempt on Earth's space dock. Hundreds of unstoppable Borg cubes and spheres in Earth's orbit. And every Stowe player that's on that one server must warp in and stop the impending invasion. A PvE battle the likes of which have never been seen. Honestly, I really think it's time that, that Star Trek Online really just pull the trigger and bring everyone into one massive server. Or two, maybe three. Then give us a galactic plague, something that, that, that's killing everyone. Give us a Borg invasion attempt on Earth, the likes of Wolf 359. When an opposing faction's ship comes near, let them engage you in PvP. Now, I know we've talked about this before. I've even asked Brandon on occasion, you know, what his thoughts are about doing world events. And, and the issue it can't happen is because of the instanced servers. But I really want to drive this home this episode. I, I, if, if Mr. D'Angelo is about the quality of life for Star Trek Online, then I think merging the instances into one, two, or three servers will give Star Trek Online the opportunity to make the galaxy a living, breathing experience and not just instanced. I don't want to have to worry that when I warp into Earth space dock whether or not I'm in the right instance to meet up with friends. If there's an event that Priority One wants to host, you know, a, a, a dance club, I don't have to worry that will our listeners be able to join us because it's instanced. It's things like this that are, I, th I think are really holding back the game's community feel. You know, we talk about, oh, everything, and now we have more cute events. We talk about the grind. But I think, and, and, and we talk about improving that with a, a, a foundry sector. 
maybe even a third PvP map where at any corner you can get ganked by another player, I think that would inject a whole new life into into Star Trek Online and would really satiate that that MMO desire. The the there would be no instanced feeling, that single player feeling anymore. I don't know what hurdles Cryptic would have to face. This isn't something we've I don't think we've even directly addressed with a developer like Hour of Error. I think it's just it, it we bring it up, we talk about it a little bit, and then we forget about it. But I really want to 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 discuss what this could mean. I don't really care about the walls anymore, the, the sector walls. I don't really care about the the queued missions like, like STFs or the Voth Battle Zone. I think that that at its core the issue here is the instanced world and server that is Star Trek Online. Bring us all into one map. Bring us all into one server. Let us have these parties on Earth Space Talk and let the servers stress a little bit. Or upgrade the servers. I don't know what it what it would cost, but separating the 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 community into these instant servers now when Star Trek Online is is really really flourishing more and more every year I think that we're going to find that Sto starts to slow down again because of this issue doesn't matter what content they're bringing on I think that forget the the one universe one sector map to rule them all I think it needs to be one or two servers or three servers to rule them all I noticed this on the Twitch streams that Captain Smirk and Laughing Trendy do um, almost Every single time, and not even almost, I mean every single time, there's a bunch of people. I can't get in the instance. I can't get in the instance. Someone team me. I can't get in. And it's always full by the time they get started. And half the people in there probably have no idea what's going on. But the other half are trying to get in. And as soon as one person leaves, then one person can get in. And that's about it. And there's like a bunch of people trying to get in. And at least for social zones... I mean, I can see how other places like Battle Zones, maybe they needed to be instanced. I don't know. But at least at least for social zones, what's the harm in having everybody together? Sometimes it gets kind of lonely in the social zone late at night when there's no one there. But you see that in, there's other people in different instances. But I don't know. It's, it, is, it is a problem with that. I do agree. There's, and I am sick of getting in the wrong instance. Every time I'm, even when I'm teamed with someone, I still get put in the in the in the different instance, and it's like I gotta change instances. It's, it is kind of annoying. Yeah, I agree, and I don't I don't think there's a problem with still having PVE queues and and missions that instance out. That's fine. It, it doesn't have to be totally open world because that would be utter chaos, and then you have people competing over. Well, I need to defeat this enemy, and it's already been killed. And when does it re- like that's that's the old days of MMOs. We don't want any of that. But as far as being able to interact and have bigger events, whether they're social events, RP events, fleet events, or actual epic world events like I think you're focusing on, Elijah, right now that capability is very limited. The only time when I think that it's good <laughs> to have it instanced is, was during like the winter event or the summer event when there's group races and you want to get into the instance when there's the least amount of people so that you're more likely to win the race. <laughs> That's what I would always exploiter. try to do. We got an exploiter here. <laughs> no, I, I totally understand. Now, that makes sense. And I think those event instances probably would be limited anyway. I'm trying to think now, you know, what, what hurdles would they face? And let's say there were two or three core inst- uh, servers, right? Okay, yes, we'd then have to decide, all right, what server are we going to move? There, there would be some hurdles, but I think that those hurdles are worth it. Okay, you have 30 days to decide what server you want your characters to be moved to. 
So you'll have to collaborate with your fleet and whatnot. And then if at the end of the 30 days, it defaults you to whatever server has the least amount of people or whatever. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is a hurdle like um, indoor zones. But the new Earth space dock, that is a roomy zone, right? You could, you could see several hundred people in there. Several thousand? I don't know. You see that? Maybe... Maybe that's uh, uh, something that they've pigeonholed themselves into when creating a, a zone like Earth Space Dock, where it's it might be a little tight to have that many people in a, in a, an enclosed environment. But a place like New Romulus, that shouldn't be a problem. Um, a place like Bajor, eh, technically shouldn't be a problem. Uh, what other what other kind of indoor zones would there be? I mean, the galaxy map, the sector map, yeah, there there'd be a lot of ships, maybe. Um, Maybe make the galaxy map bigger to help compensate for that, right? Maybe uh, they'd have to just stretch out the, the length of time it would take to get from, from uh, Earth Space Talk to Vulcan. Because right, like right now, if you go to one of the top instances, right, if you get to one of the busiest instances, in sector space, um, Soul System, you know, you see a lot of players just parked outside of Soul System. And it can get a little crowded. So maybe they need to make the, the, the maps a little bigger. And I think they try to answer this with... At first, with the Borg red alerts, right? It was you were in sector, boom, red alert. There's a world, there's a world issue happening right now. But with when you're on an instance map where the max players are, you know, 30, 50 or so, maybe, or I don't know what the number is in sector space, or even in the social maps. But when you when you're instance like that, you warp into a red alert, and there's nobody there. You know, there's very few times that you'll be able to to participate in a red alert. And the red alerts were were a great idea. And I think that if it were one or two or three servers, anytime there was a red alert, somebody would be going in there. You would have a full team to join that red alert. And sure, it's an instanced map, but heck, it's better to have a full team than go in and be like, oh, all right, let me go to the, is it on another, is it on another instance? Can I go into that instance and will I be able to join a team? Oh no, let me try another instance. And how epic would it be if we had a Wolf 359? If on, on, you know, one day, you know, one, on the anniversary event of Star Trek Online, the devs spawned uh, a fleet of Borg tactical cubes and spheres and, and to, to, to attack Earth space dock, and we all had to warp in and save Earth or save Vulcan. That'd be epic. And I think at its core, that's what's hurting Star Trek Online is this, this is the instance. I think that the content that they're developing is great, and we're going to see more amazing content. But for Star Trek Online to make an impact in the MMO world, right, when, when I see articles about the top 10 free-to-play MMOs, Star Trek Online is never there. And it bothers me a little bit, and I, and I ask why. And I think that one of, its, one of the reasons it's being held back is because we're never going to see a, an epic EVE battle. Right, we're never going to see an epic Borg invasion. We're never going to see the Enterprise warp in to save us on, on a on a Wolf three five nine scenario, because or somebody play Captain Sean in real life because you can't. They're, they're, you can't on an instance. Well, I, there's two things that I would say. One is a lot of the events listed in that article happened on games that were server based. So. Like when they talk about those events that happened in EverQuest or World of Warcraft, those things happened on specific servers. So I played those games the whole uh, lifespan where a lot of those events happened, and I never directly was a part of those player-driven, which were usually you know based on exploiting something in the system or or causing something to happen that wasn't really designed with that in mind. But nonetheless, I wasn't on the correct server to have those things happen. So. 
you're talking about actually putting up instead of just dynamically assigning people to instances having straight up servers which i think is something we've moved away from in in mmos even while nowadays there's some there's cross server activity where people can interact with to, to various degrees depending on the content uh characters on other servers so reducing the total number of instances and making a higher cap per instance i think I agree with, but actually separating anyone permanently, I think, would be even worse. Because anytime a server gets fragmented or servers get fragmented and merged or broken apart, that causes you to lose subscribers or lose players. It happened to me with Warhammer Online, and when they kept making you choose, like, do you want to go to this server or this server? Well, I don't really want to go to either. I don't know who's on that. You know, the community. Now it's going to be a different community, and I eventually left that game after several server changes. On the flip side of that, though, that kind of proves that events can happen across servers. It's just maybe because it's dynamically applying people to different instances, maybe there's too many. Like, how could the how could the dev and community team run an event across 20 instances at once if it involves any, like, hands-on interaction by them themselves, right? Talking about epic content, we just got Surface Tension, which has amazing epic content, and you can't even take a group into it is the downside. It's it's my favorite mission that I think has ever come out for STO. I love it. I think it's great story, great design. The visuals are awesome. And I'm glad I get to take my own ship into the into the big battle at the Starbase and the subsequent battle at uh, Kronos, but solo. Ooh, you know what? They should have done a PvE cute event of the Undine attacking Earth Space Dock. See, that'd be cool. That would have been. Why didn't they, they still do? Can. Why? Why didn't they do that? They still can make that. Do make it. Make it happen. Make it happen. Make a PVE battle, a, a cute event, that you know we have to fly in with the team to help save Earth Space Dock. Make it a battle zone. Ooh, that'd be fun. Why not? Why not? That would be really cool. Your the map is Earth Space Dock and it's blowing up and you still see it blow up from time to time and it's a two-parter. It's it's on the it's on the ground in Earth Space Dock. A team of five. Make it so. But also. Bring down the instance number, and let's start getting epic battles and plagues and, and things that have affect the world uh, in one massive map uh, or two massive maps that are manageable by the community. But, I, you know, I would love to hear Star Trek Online make it in one of these lists, you know. Epic MMO epic battles, battles of history! So, I would love to see that happen. Captains, here's our next community question for you this week. What do you think about dropping server instances in STO and having just two or three world servers? What hurdles do you think STO would face? What other benefits do you think this could have to the game? Let us know your thoughts in the comment section for this episode on PriorityOnePodcast.com or in the forum post for this episode on the Star Trek Online forums. Captains, one last note in STO news for this week. Uh, this week's release notes, while mostly being dedicated to bug fixes and some tweaks following the release of Season 9, we are also receiving totally free to all characters two additional bonus ship slots. Now, by the time of this broadcast, unfortunately, the 20% off ship sale accompanying it will probably be over, but I bet many of you took advantage of that this weekend. And those who were not aware of the increase to your total number of ship slots, enjoy. I know I'll open up a couple boxes that I have had stashed waiting, just waiting for the space for them to fill. Not me. I don't have enough ships to fill the slots that I have. <laughs> oh, man. Well, all in good time. All in good time. 
That wraps up STO News this week. Now, Professor Jace will take the helm of the ship and continue his discussion on defense in this episode's field notes. I'm sure there is an answer. Well, better get some facts. Welcome, Captains, to part two of our Field Notes series on defense. Thank you all for your feedback on part one and your suggestions, including potential names for this rebooted Field Notes segment. We have not chosen a name so far, so please keep your comments and suggestions rolling in as we have a couple decent ones in the running. Nothing has really leapt out and totally grabbed us yet, so let us know. So last time, we talked about all the features of your captain in terms of traits, abilities, skills that can impact your defensive ability in space. Now this time, we're going to look at your ship, but we're going to start off by talking about ship equipment. In a future episode, we will look at some sample builds where we'll talk about the impact that different ship classes and their related abilities come in. So without further ado, ship equipment as it relates to defense. So we'll start at the top. So we'll start off with deflectors. Here there's a clear winner. As you're leveling up, if you want to focus on defense, you're going to want to look for a positron deflector. That's going to include bonuses to starship shield emitters, starship structural integrity, and starship shield system skills. Now these are bonuses to the captain skills as we talked about last time. These will give you a bonus to shield healing abilities, to hull hit points, and to shield hit points. So this is a purely defensive oriented deflector. Uh, none of the other deflectors have this level of defensive focus. Some of them have some slight defensive abilities, but this is the way to go as you're rolling up. Now, all of these suggestions are gonna be for fairly basic gear, easily acquirable as you level, or immediately upon reaching max level. I'm not gonna get deep into reputation gear or fleet gear yet, I will talk about a few items that are easily available from missions as mission rewards that are well worth picking up for any captain. So in the deflector slot, positron deflector. Engines, basic engine types have few defensive bonuses. I would just suggest that if you tend to run your power settings for your engines low, you'll want combat impulse engines because they'll give you a boost at low power settings and hyper impulse engines if you tend to run with high engine settings. So speed does add to your defense, but that's an indirect bonus. So some of you will not be flying at high speeds all the time anyway. So this is gonna result in a decision based on your playstyle. Cores, now this is a huge subject. I'm probably gonna have to dedicate a whole field notes segment to warp and singularity cores on their own eventually, especially when you get into the two different entire categories of fleet cores available between the Dilithium Mine and the Fleet Spire. For now, I'll just suggest that you carefully look at the different modifiers available on them and choose one that best fits with your playstyle. Defensively speaking, field stabilizing warp cores offer a boost to your maximum shield power, enabling it to go up to 130 instead of 125 and the corresponding singularity core, the field stabilizing singularity core, offers a plus five to plus 15 shield power boost proportionate to your current singularity charge level. So basically it's gonna increase your shield power gradually as your singularity charge ramps up throughout the combat, but it will drop back down if you expend that charge to use singularity powers. Shields, I strongly prefer resilient shield arrays in this slot. While leveling, you can get the Jem'Hadar Resilient Shield Array Mark 11 from the mission Boldly They Rode. 
at the end of the 2800 featured episode series. This is the series involving the return of some of the Dominion forces from Deep Space Nine. This excellent shield is part of the Gemadar space set, which will be of interest to some and is useful regardless for its bonuses in reducing incoming energy damage and providing kinetic damage resistance, as well as providing resistance to crew disable or death. The reason why I speak so strongly about resilient shield arrays, resilient shield special trait is that they only have a 5% bleed through. All other classes of shields, 10% of all your incoming damage goes through the shields and goes to hull damage. This is like on the series when you would take a phaser impact and they would say shields holding and then minor damage to decks five through seven, uh, light casualties reported. So you're still taking some hull damage even when the shields hold up. Resilient shields cut that in half from 10% to 5%. So I like this. Covariant shields are the next best option as they have a higher shield health rating, but you will take more hull damage from bleed through. On a ship with a very high hull rating, this is less of a concern. Weapons. I'm not going to get too deep into discussing weapon loadouts here today as that's more of a damage focus, but I will touch on energy types for your weapons from a defensive standpoint. Phasers with their ability to disable enemy subsystems and Polarons with their ability to drain target ship's energy levels do have a somewhat defensive bent. Polarons are noteworthy here as they happen to synergize well with the Jem'Hadar space set. So if you choose to use two or more pieces of that set, you would also get a bonus to Polaron weapon damage, which could help you out as you get your footing in high level play. That Jem'Hadar resilient shield is well worth it, so throwing on either the engine or the deflector, whichever suits you better or whichever you need more at the time that you get them by doing that featured episode series, would give you a boost equivalent to about a third of a damage console towards Polaron energy. The device slots. Now you're going to have various number of these depending on your ship. Obviously shield batteries are great for defense. They'll give you emergency shield boost. Auxiliary batteries would be nice right before you throw a crucial heal to give a bonus. And the subspace field modulator from the first mission in the Spectres, the Davidian featured episode series called Skirmish. That one is a reusable item that gives a temporary buff to your energy damage resistance and your defense but at a high penalty to proton damage resistance. This never really mattered much. Everyone just sort of used it willy-nilly. But use it with care when the Voth are afoot because the Voth do use protonic energy attacks. So I would suggest if you use the loadouts feature, make sure you do not have this device equipped in any kind of anti-Voth loadout or when you're going into battle with our dinosaur buddies. Finally, the consumable item Deuterium Surplus from the daily mission Defense Contract in the Ada Eridani Sector Block's Alhena system acts like an evasive maneuvers power. It gives a boost to defense as well as speed and turn rate. You can do this daily and get three or four of these Deuterium Surplus and then uh, take them with you on PvE queues or PvP to give yourself a little extra ace in the hole, if you will. Consoles. Now, consoles are a big topic, right? So, tactical consoles, I'm gonna skim over. I just strongly recommend you stick with all plus energy damage consoles of your chosen energy weapon type, with rare exceptions, depending on your build. There's not really much of a defensive option here, unless you choose to go with a slightly more defensive energy type and use the appropriate boosting consoles for that. But tactical is really more of a DPS thing. 
science. Science consoles for defensive purposes, I would suggest field generators. Those are not available until a higher rank, so you won't start finding them until you're a little higher level. Those give a direct bonus to your shield hit points. Shield emitter amplifiers increase your shield regeneration. That's a nice second choice. Or failing that, shield emitter arrays, which will give you a bonus to shield healing powers. There's some other science consoles that have indirect or subtle effects on your survivability and defense, but you can check them out if you're interested. If you find them, check the tooltips to see what skills it increases and if those skills are relevant to any powers you're even using. They're, they're pretty fiddly. With regards to engineering consoles, alloy armor consoles are probably your best defensive choice. You have monotanium alloy, which gives a high kinetic resist, mines and torpedoes, while the other alloys have different names, but the difference between the names is the level or the mark. So you'll see different names, but as long as it's alloy, if it's not monotanium, it's gonna give you a resist to all energy and kinetic damage. There's other armor consoles, they tend to be very specific. Um, I personally rarely use them, even just when leveling up, unless I have nothing else to throw in the slot. I would stick with the alloy consoles to give you a better generalized protection. Although with loadouts, you could do loadouts to resist different energy types if you know you're gonna be doing Romulan missions, queue up uh, plasma energy resist, that sort of thing. Alternatively, structural integrity field generators, which you'll just see in game as SIF generators, boost hull healing, and field emitters boost shield power levels, but I find those bonuses less than impressive. On the other hand, resistance consoles do suffer from diminishing returns, so mixing up your consoles a bit in engineering slots is probably for the best. Uh, also, as you get access to universal consoles, or if you're using any sea store ships with special consoles, you can usually get away with putting them in engineering consoles slots. But you will find for every resistance console you slot, you'll get a little bit less back from the next one. So I wouldn't tend to put four or five in there, especially of the same type, but your mileage may vary. Finally, hangar bays. If your ship has a hangar bay, you're probably gonna use it for attack purposes. Should you decide otherwise though, there are a few options. Federation shield repair drones can do exactly as their name suggests, while KDF power siphon drones and Orion interceptors both have energy drain abilities to use against your foes to reduce their damage input to you. That best defense is a strong offense philosophy of the KDF. So that basically covers the ship equipment slots available across the board. Now, obviously, if you have access to a fleet starbase and fleet holdings, especially higher level ones, and you have the resources, in many of these slots, there are fleet options that are like souped up versions of the items that I went over today. That's pretty straightforward. I would say cores are the most complicated fleet gear. Reputation gear and special consoles from the sea store, etc. They mix this up more and become very much unique to your build. And we'll talk about builds more where we bring all the pieces together in the future. But for today, you should have a pretty good grounding in what you should be looking for as you level up or if you want to improve your defense in high level play, but don't quite yet have access to all that rep gear and fleet gear. These suggestions should allow you to survive and hang in there in PVE content with your friends, with your fleet mates, or even in a pug queue while you learn the ropes. So again, give us your feedback, your suggestions on a new name for this segment. Uh, next time we'll be looking at bridge officer abilities 
and duty officer active duty powers as they relate to defense and we'll start to tie this all together. So thank you once again for tuning in to Field Notes. Next, our community spotlight checks out Star Trek Horizons in an interview with their creator. captains in our community spotlight this week we welcome tommy Kraft, the writer director and executive producer of the independent film project star trek horizon tommy thank you so much for joining us here on priority one podcast hey thank you for having me it's great to be here so why don't we start with uh telling us a little bit about yourself and and where star trek horizon came from well as you said i'm the writer director and executive producer and generally, I bill myself as an artist because I do so many different things with my films. Um, I've said that uh, people can call me the guy who does things <laughs> on these movies. And uh, Star Trek Horizon is an enterprise-based fan film. And it arose out of both my passion for filmmaking and my passion for enterprise and just the really short reason for that is I was going through a hard time year and a half two years ago and enterprise helped me through that and helped me find what I want to do with myself in life and so this is my way to kind of give back to enterprise you see that it's it's amazing how much Star Trek has touched our lives so many lives and uh, and, and it's great when we can take our talents and apply them to something uh, that has given to us. And, and in this case, you've got this independent film project. What you 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 mentioned that you've done film before. What uh, what's your background in, in filmmaking? Well, I've been making short films for probably five or so years now. Um, I started right out of high school, and I've always loved movies and always wanted to make them for as long as I can remember. I've been editing and composing music, or editing films and composing music for about as long as I can remember as well. And I actually went to college for guitar and voice, so music is big in my background too, and that's my other big thing. Where'd you go, if you don't mind my asking? Uh, Albion College. It's a little, it's a little uh, liberal arts school in Michigan. Nice. Very cool. Very cool. I studied. I went to school for music too. Oh, cool. Uh, and acting and acting. So, yeah, very cool. Very exciting. Um, all right. Now, tell us a little bit about the plot of Star Trek Horizon. What what can you tell us? Well, it takes place in the year 2160, a year before the founding of the Federation. And it takes place during sort of the ending times of the Romulan Wars. And it doesn't take us through to the very end in the very last battle of the war. But uh, it's it's close to the end of the war. And it's kind of part of... The climax, and so the main idea is that we follow the crew of the NX04 Discovery, and the, the captain is Captain Harrison Hawk, played by Paul Lang, and we we get this information that there's a Romulan defector named Tamar, who wants to you know, get away from the things that her people are doing and help out the good guys, who she perceives to be the good guys in the war, and so the movie picks up as the crew of the NX-04 is bringing her back to debrief her at Starfleet and we find out some information on the Romulans' plans for the war and the movie kind of goes from there and how they deal with that and there's also some stuff to do with the future guy from Enterprise and 
and stuff like that. Now, you just released the first uh, five, six minutes of, of the film, and we are taken to the past, right? A, a distant past when the Iconians uh, ruled the galaxy. How do the Iconians play a role in this story? Well, it's it comes into play about, especially halfway through the movie, but there's also a lot of um, moral or philosophical, however you want it, underpinnings to it, too, that make that scene important. But the basic idea of the scene is it takes place right sort of at the end of their society when they are being destroyed. And it's based on the line or idea in TNG when Picard said that people may have misconstrued the Iconians for demons and that they may have actually been good guys. We don't know. So I decided to kind of roll with that. And the idea that I have gone with is that they were actually ones that for 250,000 years ago they united all of the space-bearing races of the galaxy except for one who wants to kind of get them out of the way and so what this race did was they slowly turned all these races against the Iconians and basically set them up and so the Iconians are at their last resort now which is where we see this scene where they're using the world gate to steal Horizon. And um, later on in the movie, that, that comes back once the crew of the NX-04 finds Horizon for themselves. And there has been some confusion uh, because as a standalone scene, it's not clear, but you do find out later in the movie that the planet itself is Horizon and that big ring is, the, is a is an oversized version of the Iconian Gateway built for that planet. Now, this is this is super cool because a lot of our listeners, a uh, majority of them, play Star Trek Online. And I know I, I, I mentioned this slightly with uh, when we were chatting on Facebook. Um, you see, in Star Trek Online, the Iconians, uh, as to the story thus far, are um, are played evil, right? They are right. they are the anta- yeah. the main antagonist in, in the game. Um, and now in the opening scene, the two characters that we see, they, they are Iconian? Uh, Iconian, yes. Okay, so the, the two, they are humanoid. So in Star Trek Online, they're not even, they're barely humanoid. I don't know if you've seen right. a picture of them um, on what the Iconians look like. So it's, it's, it's really interesting to see how you've spun that, that it's actually another race that paints them in such a, a poor light. Um, so that, that's, that's really intriguing. I, li- I, like that, that, I like that spin. And also well, we have Iconian gateways as well in, in Star Trek yeah. Online. And the reason I wanted to do that, too, is I would have liked to have maintained continuity with Star Trek Online, but since it's not a TV show or a movie, I felt okay with going my own direction. And the reason I really wanted to is it really fits in well with the story I wanted to tell and the idea that I wanted to present in the movie, which is this idea of is it possible to really unite all kinds of people? And is it, is, is that not just humanity, but humans, Romulans, Vulcans, and Iconians, and so on? And we see in this scene that Iconians, being once one of the most powerful races in the galaxy, managed to unite everyone except for one. And there's always that separatist, and the separatist refers to the uh, the race that set up the Iconians, it refers to the Romulans, it refers to races down the line or conglomerates, I should say, like the Dominion. Um, 
so there's this question that I'm asking in the story and having the Iconians be those ultimate good guys kind of really helped push that along. And they do look really cool in Star Trek Online too, it, or as well, but that kind of look would have been quite outside of our budget, unfortunately. And it's something that I would like to do, but we've done a lot with a low budget, but yeah, and, some and things... What? Go ahead. No, I was saying some things are are much more difficult, and when it gets to um, basically doing full CG characters and such, that's when you get into things that are going to take, uh, you know, just a lot more time just in the art itself to do well. Right, 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 Under- and understandably so. I just it's it's so um, it's it's fun to to see it juxtaposed a little bit like that, uh, and that's really the, the one of the reasons why I brought it up because, like I said, most of our fans are, are Stowe players, um, and the way they understand it is the Iconians are evil. So it's fun, and I like it. I like that that retelling of yours. And you know, speaking of of the CGI and the effects and and what it's what it takes to put this together. Uh, what you've released so far is just gorgeous. You know, I understand Thank that you. every a majority of it is uh, on green screen, but man, yeah. is it good green screen! It is really gorgeous green screen. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's been tons and tons of hours into compositing and and doing the rendering, the 3D models, and part of what really helps that is making sure all the lighting meshes well and really blending those real elements with the CG elements and it takes a lot of time for sure but I'm glad you like it that I guess it's it's working well then yeah from what we've seen it just it it is uh, comparable to a lot of feature films that we see in the box office that are set to CGI right I mean you know you look at, at the Star Wars films and and you can tell you you look and you're like oh that's, that's some green screen <laughs> you have such an amazing talent in blending it so well where Man, it looks it looks darn near real, real, really. It's, it's so congratulations, congratulations, and you've got some great talent there. So so way way to go, man. Well, thank you. I've I've grown up watching things like Star Wars, of course, and Star Trek, and and you know all of these huge CGI movies from X Men to Avengers and so on. And I've really looked up to that standard, and it's very quite the compliment for you to to say that you know i'm i'm living up to that and i and that's and i love visual effects and i love directing and i love being able to blend them well so that that is quite the compliment thank you no thank you i mean you know right now one of the big things is that we don't have star trek on tv so to have uh you know to have a project like yours in development is really exciting so uh let's talk a little bit about uh about the team who's who's working with you and and what uh what does it take to produce something like this well um a lot of it is just me right now i've basically we have our cast and we have a sound guy who's usually with us on set to do the boom operation and and levels and all that and we have me who's usually it's just me on the camera and the cinematography and lighting and in post, it's pretty much all me, except I've had a couple of guys, Alexander Clem, who some might know as Night Fever on various CG forums, and Eric Henry, who's worked with Alec on Axanar, and um, Ryan McClure. Those are basically the only other effects guys who've just done a few models for me. Alex did the Vulcan ship that's in the Kickstarter video. But other than that, um, Ryan did the uh, the Romulan Warbird, and Eric's done some concept art. Other than that, it's been pretty much all me. And 
this is some people have seen our ten thousand dollar goal on Kickstarter and now up to seventeen thousand. And they said, well, how can you make a feature for for only ten thousand dollars? And that is really cheap for this kind of feature, but it is both the best thing, like the saving grace, and the worst thing that I'm doing so much myself because we don't have to worry about paying an entire visual effects studio to do these shots. It, you know, we don't have to worry about paying tailors to make all the costumes because I've made them all myself. We don't have to worry about paying a composer because I'm composing myself. And so since I'm not getting paid either, we can really, really, really drop our budget down and just make it to essentials. What do we need? What do I need really to assist my production of this here at home on, you know, basically so far by one computer, my desktop? And uh, but going back to the cast and the crew, that's basically it. We just have cast and me and a couple other people. And even at times on set, we've had actors hold the boom pole and we've had the makeup artists hold the boom pole when our regular sound guy wasn't available. So it's a very, very small production. Now, is, are, are those involved, cast and crew, are they big Trekkies too? Some of them are, and some of them not as much. That's not to say none of them or none of them have anything against Star Trek. But coming into this project, some of them were only casually familiar with Star Trek, and then others, like my chief engineer, is a huge Trekkie who actually made his own four fan films ten years ago when he was just getting out of high school and going into college. They're, for anyone who knows, they're the Encarta fan films from way back. And so he's had his own history with Star Trek and his own love for it. But mostly the cast have not been huge Trekkies, actually. But you know what? Sometimes that helps, too, right? Sometimes that, that helps. Well, yeah, the exactly. And as the actor, kind of, you know, you do your research and then you start falling in love with the lore. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the, the Kickstarter campaign. So you originally had a goal of, of 10,000. Yeah. Uh, and now with 10 days to go, you're already 7,000 over. Uh, where, if you don't mind sharing for our audience that that look at Kickstarter and uh, and really want to know about what they're investing in, can you talk to us a little bit about what that money is going towards? Uh, and now that you're over budget, the original goal, where will that money go? Well, one of the biggest things I mentioned in the Kickstarter video is storage space. And at this point, we have to we just had to shoot a big two day shoot. But now at this point, until we get Kickstarter money. I literally can't shoot anymore because I'm out of hard drive space and because we're shooting raw, which is a really um, file size intensive format. It's about five to six megs per frame usually and times that times 24 frames a second that you can see how the file sizes go up incredibly. And so uh, one of the biggest things we need is to increase that storage space. And continuing in the computer vein, we I would also like to definitely upgrade the main workstation I'm working on. And the reason for that is, is because once you start getting complex scenes working on in the uh, 3D applications like 3ds Max, where you have hundreds of texture files that are 8,192 by 8,192, and you have models that are um, upwards of one to two million polygons, it really, really, really starts to slow down just for putting a scene together. And that's not even when it comes to rendering the final image. 
And there have been times when trying to just open up the material editor where I load in all my textures, it's taken up to half an hour just to open the material editor. And so that's one of the biggest goals for me is being to able to upgrade the workstation, which means we can also get this out much quicker to everyone. And then beyond that, there's additional software I'd like to get to assist in the visual effects. There's some extra camera equipment that I'd like to both purchase and build to assist with the shooting. And if we make enough money, I'd like to try and reach out to some of the Enterprise originals like Scott Bakula, Connor Trenier, and Gary Graham and get them in for a couple of scenes, you know, maybe a day of shooting and put them in the movie to help really give it that official feel. That That's really, really exciting. In terms of filming uh, Star Trek Horizon, where is that taking place? I mean, what type of environment are the actors in? Let, let's... Talk a little bit about that. Well, the we just uploaded like thirty some pictures to the Facebook, and they're all behind the scenes. They're on the original, or they're on the official website now too. Behind the scenes pictures from our two day shoot, and that's a pretty good indicator of what environment the actors are usually in. It's almost all green screen. There's only a couple of scenes in the whole movie that are actually shot on location in you know a real place. For the rest, it's all green screen, and most of that green screen is actually in my basement where I have, you know, a green screen studio set up with some overhead lights and so on. And the shoot that we just uploaded the pictures from, we did at a studio in Detroit. And it's a good time, I guess, to shout out to the guy who owns it, Scott Sprague. Um, he was very generous in opening up his location to us and letting us use it. It was a huge, beautiful studio. And uh, we were able to get in there. And one of the reasons I wanted to do that is because we had a... Uh, a large metal platform that my brother constructed to match specifically the dimensions of the platform in front of the warp core in engineering. And the actor was able to climb up on that and do some stuff and it was really cool. And that just wouldn't have fit in my basement. But mostly it's, we had that shoot there. Otherwise it's pretty much all in Southern Michigan in my basement. That's awesome. That's because, you know, you see the final renders, you see the, the snippets and I would never have guessed. I would never have guessed that it's it's done uh, in your basement. It's so it's so awesome. What about any hurdles? Are the actors experiencing any difficulties performing to essentially their imagination? Uh, in some cases, anything that you can comment on that? Well, it's I don't think it's been too bad for them. Um, as Mark, who plays Commander Jackson Gates, said, it's really just a different mindset. And I found that if I do a good job in describing to the actors and showing them what the scene is going to look like and what they're supposed to do in front of the green screen. They don't usually have too much of a problem because anytime when you're doing this, it's always nice to have a real set. But when you're shooting a phaser fight, you're still waving a plastic gun in the air and pretending there's a laser beam coming out of it. And so this is just taking it one step further and imagining there's walls and a floor and everything around you there. But it really comes down to the ability of the director, myself, to give them this mental image of what the scene is going to look like when it's done and what's around them. And so they can realize what it is they really have to do and put their, you know, the frame of mind they have to be in. I, actually, I haven't had much of a problem really with explaining this to them and, and getting them to getting it to work for them. And maybe that's just because I have really talented people, but uh, it's been good so far. 
So what is, with 10 days to go as of this recording on, on uh, Thursday, May 8th, with, with 10 days to go on the Kickstarter project, what is your production schedule looking like? Now, you've already, you've already meet, met that goal, so uh, that still doesn't discourage anybody from contributing um, because, of course, like you said, the more equipment you have, the more power you have to render and edit the, the film, the faster you can churn out the, the film. But what, um, what is your production timetable as it stands right now? I would like to be done with the film by December. And I'm not setting that as a hard release date. That's why I haven't set a specific day on it yet, because it depends really in a lot of ways on if I get some other really good people to help out with some of these visual effects and if I can do all the computer upgrades that I want to um, to really facilitate the increased speed of, of the workflow and the rendering. But we are we're getting close and shooting. I'd say since our shoot in Detroit, we're probably about 50-60% of the way done. Just a couple of more shoots and we can wrap that up. And once we wrap up shooting, it's really the home stretch for me because it's just cracking down, sitting in front of the computer day in, day out, and, and cracking out those visual effects sequences. So I, you know, it's why it's early May now. So I think, I think December is doable. That's what I'm shooting for. Now, December being doable with the current Kickstarter project, that you don't plan on doing another Kickstarter campaign for more money or anything of that nature? No, I don't, because that's, that's, that's kind of one of my pet peeves, is you ask people for money once, and you know you shouldn't have to keep going back to the well. Now, you know, I, I do ask uh, this uh, of some of the other independent film projects. What do you think separates you from some of the others? From other fan films or yeah, independent from films? films? Okay. From other fan well, and independent films. Well, in terms of, uh, well, I guess, I guess it applies to everything. Is we just have not, I don't say this to be narcissistic in any way, but I think we have a quality that not many have. And... You know, I also have a huge love for Star Trek, which is part of the reason why we have that quality. But what sets us apart is definitely our professionalism in making a great product. And it's, I will not settle for anything less than this movie being a professional product. product. And it's something that Star Trek fans will be able to really enjoy, I think. And it's something that somebody who has no knowledge of Trek can enjoy. The actors, when I sent them the script, the ones who hadn't been into Star Trek before had no trouble with it. So I think what really sets us apart is we are not just for fans, and we are a very high-quality film on a very low budget that should impress fans. It should make fans happy. It should make non-fans happy. And it should be something that anyone can look at and say, wow, this looks like it was done professionally. And I think that's our big thing, because we don't have a lot of the big names like uh, Renegades or Axanar does, but we do have, I think, other things that make us special, and that's our very small production team that's close-knit, and the way we interact with the community and, and release updates for everyone and try to stay on top of everything like that, I think is something that other, the other projects don't really do too much. And, you know, you don't have to have, you know, the, the Star Trek alum working on it uh, on a project to, to make it good because an actor is only as good as the script and, and the director, right? right? So, uh, 
you know, you don't need to have somebody like a, a Scott Bakula to make this great, you know? Um, sure, it's nice, but in no, in no way will it, will it alter how successful the project is when you have a talented team uh, of, of artists, of crew, uh, of actors behind the scenes. So that's exactly why I didn't write any of the Enterprise characters into the script, because I wanted to, I mean, I would like to be able to put them in as cameos, and I know exactly where I would put them if I could get them for a day. But this is, you know, it's not, it's not something that needs that talent, and I'm, being the one that wrote the script and being the director, I, I don't know if there's a good way to, to talk um promotionally about the project and say it's good without being narcissistic but i'm very confident in in the script that i've written and everyone who's read it has had nothing but good things to say about it and so i think that this is a project that if we can get a couple of those names it'd be really cool but it certainly doesn't rely on them for that it it doesn't their names aren't placeholder for quality so to speak and listen, like I said, the, the the scene that you have released uh, on the on your uh, Kickstarter page it is great. I mean, just those six minutes alone. I mean, it's beautiful. Uh, it's well written, and it got me. You know, I was like, all right, I want to know what. Okay, first of all, Iconians, right? Because like I mentioned, Star Trek yeah. Online. Uh, but you know, I want to know about this story. So, um, uh, just great work, great work overall, and I'm really looking forward to uh, what comes from from you and the team at, at Star Trek Horizon. This is the time of the interview where, you know, I encourage you to, to tell us more. If there's something we didn't cover that you want to uh, tell our audience, uh, by all means, please let us uh, let us know. Well, I think we've covered all the all the important parts. I guess I should just say for anybody who's worried about a Romulan defector and hasn't heard me cover this in another interview, um, she doesn't look like a Romulan. She's been genetically modified to be human because she was part of a Tal Shiar operation to infiltrate Starfleet before she defected. So we are maintaining that um, that canon rule that you can't see a Romulan at this time. So don't worry about that. Um, otherwise, I think we've done a pretty good job respecting canon and canon rules, and hopefully we should be able to make everyone happy. That's, that's what I'm hoping for anyway. Uh, any shout-outs to cast, crew, any, anything like that? Just that they're awesome, and I wouldn't be able to do this without them. They're probably the best cast I've ever had on a project, and uh, it's been great working with them, and I really hope that everyone out there really enjoys their work, too, when they get to see it. Awesome. Uh, Now, where can our listeners go to contribute to follow Star Trek Horizon? How can they get in touch with you and uh, keep up to date? Well, you can go to StarTrekHorizon.com. Or you can go to facebook.com slash horizon, or you can just search on Facebook for Star Trek Horizon. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can use the contact form on the website or just send us a message at the Facebook, and it's always me that answers either one of those. I also have a personal Twitter, but I, I have a hard time tweeting because I just have a hard time remembering to do it. But if you want to follow me there, it's Tommy G Dog, D-A-W-G. And I think that's about it for places to find us. Awesome. In terms, of, once the Kickstarter is done, ten days from now, uh, and you mentioned already that you know your your goal is to have it published by the end of the year. What can followers of Horizon look forward to between now and and December? Do you plan on doing clips and snippets, and and what type of featurettes, if any, do you plan to release between now and and the finished product? Right. Well. 
Um, we do have another trailer or two planned, and we have I also, of course, continuing video blogs to upgrade, update people on the status of production. And we also have what I want to do is video tutorials on things that we've released so far. I've had a number of people comment and and ask for, you know, how do I do some of this stuff? And so one of the next things I actually want to release is a video tutorial on how I, an overview basically of how I put together the effects and everything for the Iconian scene. And also one thing we will have coming out in a few months is a friend of mine, Liam Trait, Tate, I should say, excuse me, um, wrote a little vignette for us that takes place in the Mirror Universe. And this doesn't really have uh, a direct connection to the movie, but we thought it would be a fun thing to do, kind of like Enterprise's Mirror Universe episode. So that'll be coming out, too, within a few months. And um, I think that's about it that we have planned. So we have continued pictures and tutorials, video blogs, trailers, and a vignette coming up. So there's definitely going to be plenty of content to keep people interested. Awesome. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Tommy, thank you so very much for stopping by and talking to us about Star Trek Horizon. Uh, I know that if our listeners haven't checked it out, uh, they are certainly going to, and they're going to be just as odd as we have been uh, who have been following the project. So, again, thank you so very much. We look forward to uh, more updates, uh, more clips as, as they come along, hopefully and uh, for the final project, hopefully towards the end of this year. Well, thank you for having me and for all the nice things you've said, and, and hopefully the audience will enjoy what they see, and uh, I'd love to come back sometime if you ever want to talk again. So Absolutely, thank absolutely. You. Well, Tommy, again, thank you so much for stopping by. We hope to have you back again in a few months to give us an update on, on Star Trek Horizon, and we look forward to uh, keeping up to speed with it. Sweet, thank you. I guess I will talk to you then. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, Captains, our first piece of feedback comes from Adam Lejeune via PriorityOnePodcast.com. The Undine Space Battlezone is quite fun, especially since difficulty scales with the number of players. I spent some time securing and holding a point solo, taking out Undine ships as they approached. I also love the fluidic anti-proton dual heavy cannons. The weapons fire is amazing, as is the proc. Keep up the great work. Yeah, I really do like that battle zone. Yeah, I've, I've got to play it a little more, but our next contributor, Anthony, seems to think differently. Anthony Shane McEwen offers up this feedback via our Facebook. The Undine PVE and Space Battle Zone. It's boring. You put a lot of effort into it only to get a few Undine marks for the time. The PVE is just too boring. It takes a while to complete and there's not enough people queuing for them. The only stuff or thing I've enjoyed is the revamp Earth Space Dock, the rep system, the kits, the traits, and of course, the awesome featured episode. That was awesome. I need more of that. More episodes. Overall, Season 9 has been meh. I gotta take issue with that because revamped Earth Space Dock, rep system, kits, traits, the featured episode leaving you wanting more, and overall it's meh? Come on, Anthony. (laughs) You basically said the only thing you're not really excited about is, admittedly, you know, that's a big part of the content because it's repeatable. But clearly there's stuff here you like. Well, you know what I'm finding is that um, after you do the Voth Battle Zone and you get like 300 marks in, in what feels like no time at all for content that's really fun, right? The, the content that I'm kind of wanting, which is that, that world content, uh, everything else kind of seems the, – the return on investment on the other content just feels really low, right? It, it's Voth – you can earth earn a lot of Voth marks 
with one battle zone event. And I feel that the PVE, the Undine Space PVE battle zone, should should reward that same level at that same level where okay we're gonna do this it might be a smaller map but it, it should still reward almost as much as that the voth battle zone i mean because man you can get a lot of marks on the on the voth battle zone and dilithium too yeah Woo. oh yeah i uh, yeah i don't know that i'll keep doing the pve queuing events they're just not worth the time but um the battle zone i seem to you know you get you get more for your time the battle zone and you get to live Shemrockski wrote to us via priority1podcast.com I don't have any negative feelings about anything Cryptic gives us i.e. season 9 I love this game and I will play it till it dies or till I die LOL a huge thanks to the team at Cryptic for everything they have made the writing in particular is spectacular how they have and keep weaving the story from all of the shows and even tiny little references. You know, there's there's one thing that, you know, I hope that everybody understands when listening to Priority One Podcast is that, you know, we're, we are a fan cast for Star Trek Online. And even the things that we hate or have criticism about um, is still not going to bash the game that we are, is currently, at least mine, uh, and I would like to say Cookie and, and, and Jace's main game, right? That's it's, the only it's game the one I that play. we, you know, it's the one that we keep turning to. So, you know, there is very little negativity that you're going to hear from Priority One Podcast because we feel the same way, or at least I do. Um, I love the game, and I will play it until the servers shut down, uh, or until I shut down, like Shamrosky said, um, because it's it's Star Trek Online. Know, the one of the best MMOs that I've played, uh, and of course in a franchise that I love dearly. Sunseal writes to us via PriorityOnePodcast.com. Coming from the lore camp against the Undine ships, I'd actually like to thank Al for the spun lore on where the Undine ships came from. I've never had an issue with the lockbox itself. I was always just iffy on the, hey, I'm a Ferengi and I've got these suicidal xenophobe ships to sell you. Now with the clarification, it's much easier in my mind to be okay with people having the ships themselves. Yeah, Al, we just wanted the one sentence. That's it. <laughs> if you're okay with kidnapped babies. <laughs> Actually, I, th I, I did think that was a pretty cool story. Uh, now, I believe we had some feedback somewhere, um, or maybe just somebody commented that it sound they thought that he sounded like maybe he was sort of uh, looking to see what he could get away with saying at this time, as if we may learn even more about the Undine in uh, future content. Which I thought was intriguing. He mentioned this, right? That it would be interesting to have some kind of a mission or a PVE where you could kidnap the baby. Yeah, he was talking about adding that as an optional objective in the queue. Sanox Skyrat wrote in via PriorityOnePodcast.com. These lockboxes are important for the continuation of the game. The Dilithium store rate is getting higher. Keys have doubled in price, and the ship, which is rarely being sold, uh, referring to the Nikor warship, is 200 million energy credits. I know some people disagree, but there's a group not being voiced here. We love Trek as much or even more and are happy to throw money at it. A lot of money. Much to my wife's despair, he says. <laughs> Which absolutely. Uh, there's no way you could buy this stuff on the exchange if people weren't purchasing keys and opening lockboxes. I certainly have opened my fair share in my day. I know you have too, Elijah. Uh, enough for me to not buy them anymore. It's You know what, it's, you know what it is? It's that you open up a lockbox and you don't get, you know, you get some nice stuff, right? Nothing that I would use. 
And then you have Skiffy that opens on opens them on day one and gets in the core battle, the core ship. And I'm just like, I quit. I don't want to buy lockbox. I was so upset when I first had my lockbox experience. Oh, I was so mad. I didn't know. <laughs> Okay, I did not know that a key only lasted for one box. Oh, no. And you know how long it took me to get enough energy credits to buy one key? It took me so long. This was in the beginning when I first started playing, but nobody said a word. I talked to people about it. Nobody said a word about this key only being, you know, you'd think a key would last, you know, <laughs> forever or something, but I just didn't know. And so when I, and it was a Ferengi lockbox that I chose to open. I had a bunch of lockboxes, but that's the one I chose to open. And um, I didn't get anything good, of course. And then the key was gone. And I was like, what? <laughs> All that hard work and it's gone? Oh, and I can't amazing. even open any of these lockboxes now? It just works for one box? I could not believe it. And I have not bought a key since. <laughs> it was just so... See, especially the temporal lockbox, that was probably one of my favorites. It had so many things in it that I liked or were just fun that I really didn't even care what I got. I knew I would mostly get DOFs, but I needed them at the time anyway, so that was sort of like a side benefit. I was a big fan of those packs that would give you a DOF mission that would have some funny little or cool little story to go along with it, and then had a chance, if you critically succeeded at it, to give you a blue or purple duty officer in return. Those were excellent. That's one of my favorite lockbox rewards of all time. All right, Tap Man writes into us via PriorityOnePodcast.com. I was very happy to see you get into the ethics of Stowe with your conversation about whether or not the Undine are evil, but I think Elijah should have stuck to his guns because he was pretty clearly right. The fact that the Undine were misinformed perhaps explains why they are so evil, but does not provide any evidence that they are not, in fact, evil. When I hear a race wants to exterminate another because those others are different, weaker, have a different value system, or just see things differently, I see that that fits as a possible definition of evil. So, all right, first of all, I didn't yield to his ideology that the Undine are not evil. Why just continue the argument? We agreed to disagree, and that's what happened, because the Undine are freaking evil. And, you know, it's, you know, actually, I was thinking about this when I was watching X-Men First Class the other day. Um, um, Eric, or Magneto, uh, has a real issue with people just following orders because Nazi soldiers were just following orders. Everybody, you know, in a military, the theory, the philosophy could be that, yeah, people are just following orders. So there's that, oh, there's always going to be that gray line. But when you have a race that the weak shall perish, I don't know that they were, they're going to, if they, if they had bumped into another realm or another realm invaded their space, I don't know that they would, you know, uh, think differently about that realm. I think that they're going to treat that realm the, the exact same way. So, yes, some Undine are going to, you know, splinter off and say, no, we don't, I don't know that we totally agree with, with the whole here. Maybe we should give these non-fluidics a, a chance here. There's always going to be that group, except for the Borg, because they are a hive mind. But ultimately... If, if the whole, if the community, the general community is not going to listen, then, and they just want to they commit genocide, then they're evil. They're just evil. Our Vera is not here to defend himself. So, and this is, this is our show, damn it. So I'm going to keep saying what oh, I want to say. Oh, man. Here come the feel. tweets. Here come the tweets. I, I think that the way that they 
came across, like the way, the first impression of the Federation, it just wasn't very good. It, I mean, they were trying to defend themselves from the Borg, right? And then we come in and, and kill them, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, that's yes, not a very yes. good first impression either. But what? But it wasn't just that. Once the Borg did what they did, the the Undine said, okay, it's, it's off with. I don't think Voyager really, you know, pushed them over the line here. I think once they... The Borg invaded. That's it. The Undine said, "All right, that this this whole realm's got to go." I think Voyager just kind of was the icing on the cake. Maybe I don't think it was because of Voyager that they just the Undine decided to wipe out our dimension. Right. So if you take the Borg out of the equation and just have Voyager and the Undine, would the same thing have happened? Would there have been a, a pleasant first contact mission? I, I don't, don't know, know if there even would have been maybe. a first contact, because as I recall right. from Scorpion, the way they came into contact at all was because of the Borg's incursions. And I think our STO backstory is that, okay, the we got the Borg out of fluidic space, um, Voyager sort of made that truce with the one colony, but then they, there were further incursions, which... You know, we're gonna we either are sort of finding out now, or are gonna find out more in the future. We're engineered by the Iconians to to fuel the flames, to fuel the fire of Undine hate against the vacuum dwellers. But incursions from the Borg. I assume so. Right, right. Because that's how the Borg finally get an Undine. Spoiler alert. That's how the Borg finally managed to 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 capture an Undine and, and assimilate them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just they're gen. They have at this point there is there. From what we see, maybe this will change in the future. The Undine are unyielding, and it's the weak shall perish. I mean, I don't, I, you know, there's if there's no diplomacy, then at that point, yeah, they're freaking evil. Bayrell writes to us at the Star Trek Online forum. I might disagree with Gecko. I might not like the content of what he has to say, but I do like his cold, honest truth. A perfect example is his response a while ago to the immersion-breaking aspect of lockbox ships. His response was he just got over it, but you could hear that tinge of frustration about it. It came across as something in an ideal world he wouldn't have in the game, but it is what it is, so he simply got over it. And the extra info about the item budgeting was insightful. The Cosmic One posted on the forum post for this week's episode, a huge chunk of Cryptic's operating income comes from selling keys. Those keys exclusively open lockboxes full of alien ships and equipment. The whole reason people open those lockboxes is to get those alien ships and equipment. So, while I can fully understand some fanboy purists overreacting about alien ships in the game, I can also understand that the economics do not prove those fanboys to be the majority of players. Doesn't mean a majority of people are spending money on lockboxes. Probably, you know, I don't know any numbers about the, the in-game economy, but... It, it wouldn't take a majority. It's just, you know, are enough people buying them to make it worthwhile versus the, the people who maybe take issue with it. At its core, the problem is not whether or not lockboxes are are worth it or not. They clearly are. The, the, the problem is for us fanboy purists that have podcasts like Priority One Podcast, <laughs> uh, the, the little one extra sentence would have been fun. I feel that the backpedal by Elijah was really not warranted and makes the podcast less than objective. I agree that if there is some real thought into lockbox ships and gear having a backstory of why they're available in the first place would go a long way to better fit the game and those that come to the game for the Star Trek immersion. I must disagree with Al's opinion of Species 8472. They are genocidal. The weak shall perish is not a battle cry. 
This is their belief system in which they destroyed every other life form of space in their own. If that's not evil, I don't know what is. I did not backpedal again. I didn't say, all I said was, I'm sorry, and I was, I was in fact erroneous in saying that the lockbox items were hyper-focused against the Undine. So that wasn't backpedaling. I legitimately made an error, and I said that that's all it was. And we didn't have time, unfortunately. That episode was already almost an hour long. We just did not have the opportunity to, to delve in and, and talk more about everything else. We, we decided to focus our attention on the fact that there was no story. So I didn't backpedal. I just was wrong in saying that the lockbox ships were hyper. So Woody Valley writes in at PriorityOnePodcast.com, Give Skiffy a pat on the back for working overtime on the editing floor. It was a long one, but a good one. That's right. Big shout out to Skiffy and also a huge shout out to the latest addition uh, to the Priority One podcast team, Ben Churchill of Australia. He is now our new audio assistant. He will be working with uh, Skiffy on editing uh, a good chunk of the show, and uh, he's been doing great the last couple of weeks. So big shout out to Ben Churchill. Very Yay. cool. Yay! Bravo. Candice Black posted on PriorityOnePodcast.com. In the episode, it was speculated that an animated series for TNG might be a good way to continue the Star Trek Prime universe. I do and don't agree. I think TNG's ship has sailed and its story has been told. On the other hand, using Nemesis as a jumping off point for an animated series following the exploits of Captain William Riker and the USS Titan would probably be enormously fun. I'd watch that. Yeah. I have to agree, actually. I have to agree. I think the Titan would be a great series to tell. Yeah, I, you know, it, uh, sure, TNG. Be- you know why I said TNG? Because all the actors are are still with us. Um, so it would be nice to capital. I'm going to say the word capitalize. It would be nice to capitalize on that and tell us a TNG story, right? Because we still have all the actors with us. So, you know, unfortunately, with, with the, the original series, we've lost James Duan and, and DeForest Kelly. So... We wouldn't be able to see an animated series of TOS, and that's been done already. But TNG, we, we still have the cast, and, and I think that the I, in terms of marketing, right, in terms of capitalizing on that, uh, I think Paramount and or CBS um, really should look at that. You know, the, the, a lot of good stories are being told in animation nowadays, uh, and it would be catering to... An, um, an existing audience that love TNG, you know, the, the people in their 30s, uh, early 40s, mid 40s that, that, that watched TNG live on television uh, to continue the story with a cast that is still with us. I think, it, I think it's, it's a missed opportunity if they, don't kind of, if they don't see that. Each week, our social media channels are busy with your thoughts, opinions, and suggestions for the show. Please keep them coming. Reach out to us on Facebook.com slash Priority One Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at STO Priority One or shoot an email to incoming at Priority One Podcast.com. Well, that wraps up episode 173 of Priority One Podcast. Remember, we record Thursday nights live on Trek Radio starting at around 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time. And you can subscribe by pointing your podcast catcher at feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show and submit your responses for our community questions in the comments section on our website or on the Star Trek Online forum post for this episode. Remember, this week's community questions are, will you be purchasing the new escort? How do you think it compares to the other more commonly used escorts in the game, like the Fleet Defiant? 
Our second question is, what do you think about dropping server instances in Star Trek Online and just having two or three world servers? What hurdles do you think Stowe would face? What other benefits do you think this could have to the game? Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following our social media websites. Head over to facebook.com slash priority one podcast and give us a like. Or check us out on Twitter via at STO Priority One. You can even join the Priority One podcast chat in game. Just type forward slash channel underscore join space Priority One. Captains, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One podcast. You can continue to support Priority One with real-world donations by helping us reach our monthly financial goals. We are all volunteers, and we could use your help with purchasing new equipment, hosting fees, or to alleviate travel expenses as we cover conventions on location. We'd love to see you at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention. A very special thanks to everyone who has already contributed and continues to do so on a recurring basis. Without your ongoing support, we would not be able to bring you the content you've grown to enjoy from Priority One Podcast. And don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency Podcast at GuardFrequency.com. It's a pretty good show. You should check it out. The Priority One fleet is recruiting. If you're interested in joining, just shoot us an email with your at handle and we'll be sure to send you an invite. The email is incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Thanks to the entire team behind Priority One Podcast, including our audio engineer, Skiffy, and the latest addition to the team, our new audio assistant, Ben Churchill. Thanks to Tommy Kraft of Star Trek Horizon. Make sure to trek them out and donate to the Kickstarter campaign. Visit StarTrekHorizon.com to find out more. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Epic Gamer Radio, Subspace Radio, and Trek Radio. Special thanks to our sponsor, Sayulita.com. But most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek online community, and our listeners. Without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage. Engage. And don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at GuardFrequency.com. It's a pretty good show. You should check it out. What? What's with the porno music in the background? It's whatever the music I always underscore is Guard Frequency. This is Cookie Feedback Sync 2. This is Jay's Feedback Sync 3. Did you forget who you were for a second there, Cookie? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> we have <laughs> Feedback in 3, 2. All right, Captains, our first peek at Pikachu. Pikachu.